Live Sound Bootcamp, brought to you by Rational Acoustics, developer of Smart, the industry's leading sound system measurement and optimization platform. Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp, where we cover all aspects of live sound in detail. I'm Brandon Draper, here as always with my co-hosts, Joe Santarpia and Ryan John. Hello. Ahoy. Uh, today, I am excited because we're going to talk about mixing workflows. AK- I'm not going to lie, you don't sound that excited. You're like, I am excited. <laughs> <laughs> Was I robotic on that one? No, well, no. Johnny I Five. Mean, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Bre- Brendan Six. I'm actually not that excited about many things, but I am excited. But Brendan Five. It's all uh, right, all right. It's tough to talk about. Uh, it's tough to be excited about something you know you're not going to do for probably another year. <laughs> I don't know. There is that. There is that. Yeah. But all right. What 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 are you quasi excited about that we're going to talk about? I'm just today, excited Brandon? for all the Ryan John tips and tricks that are, are going to come out this episode. Th- this you know? is going to be yeah. This is going to be a heavy tips and tricks from Ryan John. Oh man, so. I. I I didn't even know that that's how this was going to go, but it all sounds right. like it. I mean, from I our think notes, so. it looks like that. Yeah. Oh, you took notes already? No, no. I mean, from our. Oh well, we don't have an outline. We just do this all. Yes, like we, we definitely yeah. have never written an outline never for any outline. of these episodes. Yeah. We no. definitely don't have a list of classes. None of this is planned. It's all off the cuff, made up on the spot, for sure. Yes, we definitely don't have a script where we're reading every single word the whole time either. Well, that's true. Yeah. But it is fun because only that one's true. (laughs) (laughs) We've done five episodes on front of house and just setting things up. And now it's kind of like, let's get into what we're actually doing. The fun part. The fun part. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What are we talking about? Well, we're going to do mixing workflows. Uh, I guess probably this, I guess we could say that this is more geared toward front of house mixing workflows, the more creative, um, you know, rather than utilitarian monitor workflows. Yeah, boring um, ass monitor workflows. Yeah, <laughs> not that it's boring, but you know, yeah, it's more of uh, things done out of necessity rather than uh, rather than creative. Though you do have to be creative in some instances in order to solve problems more so. But uh, this one, this is this is kind of the fun thing, you know. Um, you know, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to disagree with you a little bit there. Of course, I would, because monitor mixing totally requires everything we've got in this list too. It's just going to be treated a little bit differently. Mm. Okay. So, all right. Since since we've never actually said it, what's in our list here, <laughs> right? And what we're trying to hit on today is how to make space for channels and how to get your balance right, right? And balance right meaning you know the level of where things are, and I, I guess where they're in in a spatial relationship too, and how to make space meaning if you've got multiple instruments that kind of sit in the same frequency range, how do you figure out how to make it so that both are audible? That's kind of the gist of it, right? Is that is, yeah. is that a good enough like layout? Yeah, yeah it's a good start. Yeah, it's everyone's hopes and dreams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, let, let, I'll be honest. This is this is like the challenge of mixing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. once you get yeah, all yeah, the technical many. stuff, I feel what, like when what, you think what, what about you get like, signal, when you think about like, oh, that didn't sound too good. It's like an issue with one of these two things usually, right? Like, oh, the balance was off on that show, or. I couldn't hear that thing. Yeah, yeah, these things were clashing and too much was building up in this range and it kind of ruined everything else for me, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I guess guess we're also kind of talking, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you'd call this bottom up or top down or whatever, but we're talking from console out. So dealing with things like making space for channels and getting your balance right, that is from the console end coming out. Right. So, you know, there could be other issues that are like, the room or PA or whatever coverage, right. any sort of other stuff that could be compounded on top of this. But I guess we're talking about, you know, from the early steps here, mm-hmm. you know, getting the sound coming out of your desk, correct? Um, quote, unquote, correct. I don't know what correct really means. Come but, correct, you know, bro. I mean, yeah, are we assuming correct. that, are we assuming our PA is set up we're well assuming in our, tune to the room, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah. And, and that, that our stuff. room sounds acceptable and all of that, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, considering the context of, of us sitting in these rooms right now, we're just assuming that this sounds good in your headphones, because right. we're never going to mix a show ever again anyway. It's true. This is all <laughs> hypothetical and uh, fantasy, so, yeah. This is all a theory. I mean, some of you guys may have may have been born recently, and you've never actually seen a real show. You don't know what they are. This is a thing of the past. <laughs> they haven't happened yet. Yeah, it's true. They who knows, 18 yet. years in the future, when someone who is coming of age to be a live sound mixer, they might be listening to this and being like, whoa. There what is this time. relic they speak of? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As they're like skewering a rat, like in the subway to like. Yeah, they found some uh, some uh, you know pro sound magazine. They've like dug out of the out of the ground. What is it? What are these? What is, what this, is this paper? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Oh man. Um. So yeah, you know, back on back on track. Back on track. <laughs> so let's make some space. Do you want to make space, or do you want to get balance? Oh, whatever. You want to start start with a balance? I feel like space first, right? Because well, I don't know, Brendan. You tell me. Tell me which of these two do you jump into first? Do you try and get balance together, or do you try and make space? Let's think about it. Like if I'm if I'm starting off a show, I'm going one at a time through channels. Sometimes, I mean, if it's a band I've never heard before, blah blah blah. If it's a band I've I know before, uh, you, no, well, you, you I'm br- bringing up you brought up yeah. a point there. You did because you kind of you would think that you would want to get your balance right first, but because of the workflow that happens in live sound, i.e., the sound check that happens before the show, you kind mm-hmm. of are at some point forced to address not forced, but you know, most sound check workflows. You're gonna probably listen to the elements individually before they're all together. So mm-hmm. you're kind. So then, in that sense, you, you wind up kind of working backwards. You kind of you wind up like EQing a little bit or doing some light processing. Most yeah, think, people do. I, I think you're making space first in that situation because it's like, okay, I get right. the drums in, and then here comes the bass, and it's like, I'm not thinking. I'm. I guess I'm thinking about the balance too, right. but like you're, you're not hearing everything together. So there's what are you balancing? You're kind yeah. of roughing it all. Yeah, right? you're you're. It's a rough estimate. And you're like, right. okay, like this bait. I usually reach for the EQ first to just be like, okay, the bass, like tame it in a little bit to make room for the drums or. Uh-huh. Well, I, I guess this is a good point, right? Is if, if you, let's say, have a, a an electric guitar and a Rhodes, they both sit right on top of each other, right? Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get the balance first, you're basically completely fucked because you're, you're going to pull them both up and you're going to go, this just doesn't work or you're going to pan them out or whatever. Yeah. But if you start doing some of that EQ tailoring to make them both work together, you can actually start to get a balance. Yeah, yeah. You can I mean, start. You yeah. can start from a better place, kind of. Yeah. Thing. I th- yeah. So I think the space ahead, is. Yeah, I think the space is more important because without creating space within the frequency spectrum for the different instruments, the balance matters less. It seems to right. Me. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. And I mean, the the thing It'll is, ruin I think your both balance. of these are both of these are in some ways an ongoing thing. Right? Yeah, you don't mm-hmm. just do it once and then it's done. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, so if if you think about it from from what you were just working out, you know the the kind of line check scenario or the sound check scenario, right? Where you're pulling up channels at a time. When you pull up your first channel, you know you kind of get it tonally in a spot you like it, right? Then you pull up your next channel, you get it tonally in a spot you like it, and you're guessing the level. So you are guessing a balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're pulling it up and you're going, "This feels good. All right, cool. Let me pull up the next one. This also feels good." And in theory, at that point, you also know the level of the first one. So you have some relative mental level, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I pulled up my kick drum first or whatever. Then I pulled up my snare drum and I go, yeah, this is about the level of the kick drum, right? And then maybe you pull up the rest of the drums. Because, you know, if we go in standard sound sound person order, it's kicked to, through all the rest of the drums. And then the last thing is, is vocal, right? Right. Unless you're smart and you're doing vocals first. Right, right, which that's a whole right, conversation right. There, which, yeah. which we can, Which we can get into. But if you're going through all that stuff, I mean, you are building a balance, but you're also at the same time creating space. So, for example, um, we'll, we'll pick bass because that typically comes up after drums, right? Mm-hmm. So, Joe, when you pull up your bass and you get it kind of, I don't know, sorted, however you sort it, what are you thinking when you're doing that? Like, what what are you trying to do in terms of, you know, let's say, uh, space and balance? Um, I'm, I'm thinking clarity. I'm thinking, um, uh, how can I make this, uh, this bass sound appealing, um, and clear and distinct without being harsh or, um, you know, or hurting me, you know, and also controlling the level, you know, um, is it, Mm -hmm. is it jumping out at certain notes or certain notes just 
really you know when he goes down on the on the low string on the, and low on the neck are those notes just blasting the subs you know like the balance between the instrument itself between different notes played on the instrument itself you know that's that's mm-hmm. something to consider um that's yeah that's my answer <laughs> and and at that point are you also already considering the bass kick relationship absolutely you know um you know maybe i'll even at some point once i've started to uh, you know, carve out the bass a little bit. Maybe I'll have the drummer play the kick drum with it, and I'll sound check those two instruments together. You know, to see how they're kind of interacting. Um, you don't you don't want things stepping on each other. That's uh, totally. That's that's kind of the move. You know. So kind of process wise, it's a little bit of you know get the signal out, make sure it works, make sure it's clean, all that. Start there, yeah. Then get it to sound like acceptable, acceptable tonally, yeah. and then controlled, and then immediately you're jumping into Am I masking other stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is, is it and, kind of the same process for all instruments for you? Um, no, actually. That's actually an interesting Ooh. point. No, because... He's like, he's like, I've been fucking this up all along. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, some instruments, um, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's, um, it's like, I need to, for instance, a vocal. You know, you want a vocal to sound nice, but it's also like, I need to hear this. And in the context of a mix, you know, you might be tempted on a really big PA uh, to, to like, just absolutely destroy the low end on a vocal. Um, But when that, when that's over everything and that's over the whole band, um, a lot of the intelligibility of the, of the words are going to go away if if you hack that up too much. By destroying, you mean cutting out the low end on the vocal. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, exactly. just make sure. Not like yeah, destroying yeah. it, like you're compressing and you're like destroying. Yeah, yeah, you might be like, oh shit, and just just dump two hundred, you know, mm-hmm. into oblivion. Um, but then you, but then you pull it, you know, you pull up the rest of the band, and it's like all you can hear is the sibilance. You know, it's like you got to you got to right. put a little bit of that back to kind of give it context. You know, Brendan, in terms of your process, mm-hmm. are you in something similar? Yeah, I mean, I think as I go through the instruments, I'm thinking of what is the, what do I usually relate this source to? Like, mm-hmm. when I hit the, when I'm getting to the bass, I'm, I'm thinking of the level of the kick drum. And yes, I'll ask him to put it in if he's still sitting there playing the drums, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm like thinking of the relative instruments and how that balance is going to be. So when I get to guitars, I'm like, is that in my mind... It, from previous mixes is that how i like them to sound relative to like what i think the keyboard is going to sound when it comes in is it relative and maybe guitar and bass i'm thinking like oh with that bass sound that i just heard this guitar is probably going to sit in a good place so i'm i'm every step of the way i'm like relatively thinking and then i feel like when i get to vocals i'm like okay here's where balance really comes into play right because i need to uh, I've I've had this idea in my head and okay I now need to really nail it with where the vocal is compared to everybody else because people want to f- fucking hear the singer you know yeah and, yeah I mean uh, often that often that's the name on the it, billboard right it's a goal yeah you know so in the context of that it's it sounds like both you guys are paying a lot of attention to the relationships between various instruments that might mask with one another right mm-hmm, for sure so given that like let's say we'll pick drum and bass because it's it's an easy example again do you guys pretty much always if the opportunity is available have the people on stage play those potentially competing instruments at the same time so you can hear them it's helpful yeah absolutely yeah a lot of the times i like i mean if a band is just jamming before i get up there i don't stop them yeah i just just start pulling stuff up that way everything's going at the same time and i i feel like i almost get like a clearer picture of like what I need to do, and I'm not in my head about like the individual instruments, you know. You they, know that's a great point, man. They might they probably play a little bit more naturally and more indicative of how they're going to play during the show in those cases, you know. When you're when you're like sound checking something and, and never playing it the way they're actually playing it in the song, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, even beyond that, Brendan, I mean that's a, it's it's a good point you're making there, right? Because very often, as sound people, we will start with going through the line check through lines in order. Right. And if I get my drums, then my bass, then my, I don't know, guitars, then keyboards, then whatever, then whatever in that order. And that's the first time I'm hearing any of this stuff. Then I have no idea what what's coming next might sound like. Right. 
guitars and keys to me are an easy example because they're always kind of sitting right in the same spot. Mm -hmm. So if I've got a guitar that I hear and it comes through and it's big and chunky and meaty, right? If that's the first kind of mid-range instrument I'm hearing, I might leave it big and chunky and meaty. Mm -hmm. meaty. And then when I hear the keyboards come in and they're also like kind of thick and low heavy, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known that those two things were going to compete with each other. And now I'm on the keys, so I'm going to take it out of the keys. And that might not be the right thing to do. It might have been the right thing to do it the other way around, take it out of the guitars, mm-hmm. right? But if I've only heard this stuff for the first time going through the input list in order, which is an order I've chosen, it has nothing to do with musicality, right? Uh, yet I'm you know, mixing things in that order. I'm not necessarily going to make the right decisions, Whereas if the whole band is playing, I can pull up everything and go, oh, this is how they relate to each other. This is how these two relate to each other. This is how these two relate to each other. And then you have a better headspace for which things might or might not be more important. Does that make totally. sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, well put, actually. Yeah, I, I, I would feel go like as far as to say. <laughs> especially in the live world, I feel like not nitpicking, at least to some degree, works out more than it fails i guess in my experience you know especially in like a smaller on your hi-hat sound nip it <laughs> except your hi-hat uh, how, uh what diameter are they uh yeah exactly which diameter hi-hat which yeah. microphone um no you're, you're dead right man i mean i i've i've seen guys spend you know 20 minutes getting a hi-hat dialed in and i'm like you're missing the point yeah. Now, I, I mind you, Except, I'm pretty sure even in this, I've argued that the hi hat is the most. Uh, yes, instrument. I was just thinking of that that moment <laughs> where you're like, is. no one ever thinks about the hi hat's the most played instrument on stage. Like, yeah, yes, it and it totally is. But you know, it's it's all about context of what's important in a mix, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to align, I guess, with what Brennan was saying. You know, the idea of like hearing the whole band. Right. There's one thing when it's a band you've never worked with before, you don't know any of their music. Being able to hear them all play together at least gives you an idea of what's what you're expecting to come out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of course, it's also beneficial if you know what band you're going to work for uh, that given day. Go online, listen to what their stuff sounds like, get an idea of what their goal is. Right. Mm-hmm. But if it's an artist you've worked for a million times, you already know. Right. Mm-hmm. So you don't really need to think about it in the same way. So. I know we've talked about this before, though, where I like to mix in order of priority. So I will start with kick, snare, and bass, because to me that's the, the kind of meat of, the, of anything live. You know, yeah. you've got to have the groove. Then I'll add in the vocal, because as far as I'm concerned, the vocal is the next most important thing. And then it depends on the song or it depends on the artist as you bring in the rest of the instruments. And I bring them in based on how important I think they are. So the most important thing, obviously, I brought in first. The least important thing, I bring in last. And in the context of doing a line check, that's usually a bit of a pain in the ass because, you know, you're, you're switching between instruments, b- between players and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, in the context of building a mix, I find it the most useful. That means you can take up as much sonic space as you want with the stuff you put in early, and then as you start bringing in stuff later there is less and less sonic space available, but it's acceptable because you've decided that that's less important stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, good point. Good point. So if you have the option, you know, do the line check in a linear manner, but record the whole thing, get them to play a song, and then once they, you know, go fuck off, go through and kind of re, you know, retweak uh, mm-hmm. in order of priority and like leave everything in as you start bringing stuff in. If you bring in kick and snare... Don't ever mute them when you bring in bass, and then don't ever mute them when you bring in vocal, and then you know. Yeah, or like if the if you get everything up as going through a regular line check one by one, and then you could like pull everything back down once they start playing a song, and then right do that order, you know, of importance. Right. You know, it's funny. Um, years ago, a buddy of mine came by my house. I had a console in my apartment at the time. And um, he was about to go on a tour with somebody, so we were just kind of tweaking and, and just working through some stuff from a virtual soundtrack he had. And um, I, th- I think we kind of did an exercise where it was like, yeah, you know, you get 45 minutes or something like that to pull together a whole mix, get it done. And he pulled it together, and then, you know, we sat and we listened to it. And I was like, this is pretty decent. Now take all the faders down all the way and do only faders and get your balance dialed. And in like 
I don't know, 30 seconds or so, the mix absolutely crushed the previous mix. Hmm. And it's because in the previous mix, he was like focusing on all these details and kind of getting stuff sorted, EQing this and that. Mm -hmm. And by doing all of that, some of the balance was a little off because he was paying attention to things later, you know? Yeah, paying attention to individual things as opposed to the whole. So in that moment, being able to take down every fader and just pulling it all up, the only stuff he changed was, I don't know, like a dB and a half, two dB here and there just to move things around. But suddenly it felt really good because he had prioritized the really important stuff and everything else was tucked in underneath it as opposed to prioritizing kind of along the desk from left to right, you know, kick, snare, tom, tom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it totally changed the tonality of his whole mix in a really, really good way. I don't know if you guys have ever done anything like that. Sure, sure. You know, just kind of uh, scorched earth, like reevaluate, you know, like not necessarily with your EQs and stuff like that you're saying, but yeah, with your balance yeah. levels, you know, just throw it all down and then start start over. That That's powerful. It's, it's really easy to get into, um, you know, to get into your own head and start, overanalyzing uh, an individual element and then the whole mix can kind of take a hit because of that you know mm -hmm. you're so focused on the kick drum not being perfect that um, you're neglecting the rest of the balance you know exactly right. like we're saying so um, yeah it's important to kind of uh, uh, try to break that cycle you know obviously yeah. you want everything to be as, as you know as detailed and as as close to perfect as you want it but it's never ne nothing is you know not nothing but Everything isn't always going to be one hundred percent perfect, and um, unless yeah. I do it, then it's going to be totally perfect. Let's run, John. Time. Yep. As, yeah. Um, is the end know. goal of this episode or this podcast just like hire Ryan to do your <laughs> mixer band? I'm I'm pretty sure every episode yeah. makes me seem like an asshole. <laughs> no, come on. Okay, you, just just like thirty percent of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Good thing they didn't hear. We didn't like record everything that we were talking about before the episode started. You know, yeah, yeah you guys, that's yeah. the real juicy stuff. I'm yeah, there should be day. a there should be a, a uh, live sound boot camp behind the scenes separate podcast that's yeah. just us talking shit about each other and the stuff we said in the last episode and how yeah. wrong it was. And it's got a parental advisory on that one. I think all of our episodes actually have a parental advisory on it. Really? Oh, yeah. It's a, that's There's like a badge of honor. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Someone also told me statistically that stuff that has a parental advisory actually gets more listens. Really? Yeah, when they did that whole thing in the 80s, it totally backfired because then everyone's like, ooh, I want that one. Mm, it's got the parental advisory sticker on it. Yeah. <laughs> did they stop doing that or did they still do that? I mean, I don't buy CDs anymore. I have no idea. I don't know if CDs, do C people still press CDs? I mean, outside of major labels, like especially indies, I don't, I don't know how many CDs are printing, man. I mean, they exist. You go into Best Buy, they're there. True, but like... You know, are they new? I don't know. I have right. no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably save that for the business episode, which oh, I don't right. think actually exists. Well, it's going to now. Look at that. All right. So so let's let's get detailed on making space for channels. Um, I mean, I guess there's a couple ways to do this. Um, you know, I, I think the, the obvious answer for most scenarios where you're talking about making spaces is an eq right yeah yeah i'd say so yeah so joe why, why don't you want yeah more than that joe why don't you walk me through two things that i guess you typically find sit on top of each other and how you sort them out uh yeah um keys and the entire rest of the mix a lot of times <laughs> keys verse everything literally everything um yeah, yeah. You know, like you said, keys and guitars. Keys are bass, depending on what the key patch is. Um, if you've ever, you know, mixed a band with like a B3 or something like that, there's yeah. there's an entire low end that is going to be competing with a bass, and one of them is going to make a sacrifice. You're, yep. you're, you're you know, you're never, in a, in a live scenario, especially like in a big, in a big nasty room, like that's that's you're, you're gonna there's gonna be compromises there you're gonna be pulling yep. low end out of one of those two things to accommodate the other one or you're gonna ditch the bottom mic and use only the top you know only the top leslie mics and right the b3 player is not going to know because you're not going to tell him and <laughs> say it sounded great because the low end from the bass guitar was actually carrying um the movement of everything and nobody noticed except for the I mean, other I guess b3 player in the audience I, I guess really what you're talking about there, though, is you're picking one element 
to take that frequency space, right? Rather than letting three or four sit on top of each other, right? You have to, you know. There in the recording world, you know, you talk about the kick versus bass relationship. Which one? One of those is going to take everything below sixty or or sixty to eighty hertz, and the other one is going to basically get cut off there. You know, do, right? Do you, you guys have, land pretty frequently on the same decision for kick versus bass, or do you change it up? You know, it's funny. I I used to be a um, a kick drum would take the the bottom guy and um mm-hmm. i've i've made the change now and i'm i'm primarily now a bass takes the bottom guy wow you've gone to the dark <laughs> side i've gone to the dark side y'all <laughs> yeah uh it's genre specific for me true, if it's, true. If it's that, r&b and 90s r&b that kind of stuff kick drums always in the 90 hertz range if it's like you know a medley thing kick is way subby if it's I don't know, super modern sounding pop or R&B kick might be lower as well. It, mm-hmm. it depends, man. It depends. And when it comes to live, it depends on the drum itself, whether or not the sound is even there. Yeah, true. If you there are some it. drums I hear getting hit and you're like, nope, there's definitely nothing under 60. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. When the drummer That's... shows up with like the 20 inch, no porthole kick drum yeah. and you're like, well, yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, sometimes that decision is made for you by yeah. the limitations of what's on stage. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And you know what? Take those take those as a, as a blessing, you know? Take that as a blessing. It's like, you know what? Nothing I can do. Here. You don't need to you worry know? about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just you just do what you got. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um it is funny that you bring up specifically that, right? The the used to be a a, a kick below bass and you know that kind of thing. I'm neither now. Um because a kick drum is a transient instrument. It only happens here and there. I mean, mind you, it happens all throughout songs, throughout the whole set. It's all uh-huh. the time, right? But it is not actually a constant. So as far as I'm concerned, they can occupy the same space, just not at the same time. Ah. So as far sure. as I'm concerned, kick can have that subby stuff and bass can have that subby stuff. It's just that when the kick gets hit, it needs to be gone from the bass for that moment. Are we going sidechain right now? Are side you getting chain, into sidechain? EQ. I'm, 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 I'm all the Here way there. Here we go, man, dude. We're sidechaining. Let's, let's let's not get that deep into it, but the idea is... <laughs> that's making space. That it, that's making that's space. That's making space, right? Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is make sure that there is only one instrument taking up a frequency range at any given time, as opposed to one instrument takes up that range all the time, right? So where, that, where the idea of one instrument takes up that range all the time becomes problematic is that if you have arrangements that change throughout the set let's say the bass player goes from a bass guitar to no bass and it's now keys only if i've taken the low end out of my keys channels now it's going to sound like it's got this giant hole in the frequency response right so i try to take into account time more than just frequency in general because at any given time, I want my mix to be full. You yeah. know, like all ranges occupied. Maybe not literally, but you know what I mean? Yeah. All ranges that are happening occupied. Right, all ranges that are happening occupied, exactly. So yeah. I don't want a lot of static EQs that make massive changes uh-huh. uh, in order to make space for everything if everything is not being played all the time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, that's kind of, that's a whole other conversation too, you know, versus, versus again, the recording world where you have the option of, you know, you're not in linear time, you know, you can go right. back, we can chop up tracks, you know, certain parts we can have, you know, we can, we can split yeah. the bass up in certain parts it has this frequency response and certain parts it has this, you know, in right. live, you don't really have that luxury as much, well, you know, new consoles and stuff, you have way more options and you can split tracks and stuff like that, but, but either way, you're, you're kind of trying to like essentially mix an entire performance, you know, with like as having to do as little as possible throughout it's, it, you know, you don't, you it's don't, a moving yeah. target, you know, like Straight it's up. changing the yeah, whole yeah. time. The so whole like time. if you put a static change to a channel, it's not always going to work. It's not always going to right. work. Ima- you know, imagine if can... that was, imagine a record. Imagine listening to a record that like, you know, they mix the first song and they press play and it's like, okay, we're done. And then the rest of the album was just, can you imagine how fucked up that would sound? You know, it's like, that's, <laughs> that's essentially what you're expected to do in, in, in the moment, you know, with an hour sound check, you know, you're mixing a record, you get weeks, months, whatever, whatever it is, you know. And I mean, that's, um, that. This is also getting to the heart of like what makes live sound fun too, right? Absolutely, totally. You're playing, you're like playing, and you're reacting in real time the whole time, and it's that's why. I mean, that's I think that's what draws me to it. Are you guys dancers? Are you guys front of house dancers? Yes. (laughs) 
cool man and 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 my wife has all these videos from behind me of like me just fucking grooving out and she's just like laughing dude i, I love <laughs> you the go, look, you're, dude. you're walking over the rack turning the knob and you're like yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly oh, dude the, i love the look like the front of house guy who's like perform like actually performing you know with like moving mm-hmm. with the van man that's 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 a special look i love it you know, it's funny, though, because I never notice that I'm doing it, but then I'll see videos or something, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I look stupid. <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel slightly embarrassed? Definitely. Sick. <laughs> but at the time, it works, man. At the time, Dude, I'm like feeling feel it. it. You know, I'm excited yeah. about yeah. it. This makes me miss the, miss the independence so much, because oh, the last man. show I did there was like... On it was like fantastic and like everyone was dancing, having fun. Like it's it's great there too because you're on, you're on the balcony and like you know only VIPs are up there, so it's not a ton of people. You're not like right. you know yeah. in the fray really necessarily. Yeah. yeah, so you can kind of get away with you know getting a little jubilant up there. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, back to your mention of keys versus the entire mix. <laughs> now, I think that's super relevant. Mostly because keys patches change so often, almost song to song. Mm -hmm. And that is almost like you're tracking like between three and ten different instruments on a single Mm -hmm. channel, which is crazy. Yeah. So, you know, a a Rhodes patch might have, I don't know, a bunch of lows. A piano patch might be super harsh. An organ patch might just be full bandwidth noise, basically. Yeah. And they're all completely different, yet we're trying to deal with them on the same channel very often, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's one of those things where you're chasing the EQ. But in terms of the idea of making space, I'll be honest. If it's an artist I haven't worked with before, I don't know what's going to be coming down that keys line, I will EQ pretty harshly on it. Mm-hmm. Like pretty darn harshly because I know that there's so many things that might come down that line. Yeah. Then I'm, I'll be honest, I'm like a little afraid of it, you know? Yeah. 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 So it gets into compression too, you know, like, same. If, you know, if you're, yeah, if you've never, if you've never mixed a band before and there's a keyboard player and you know, you know, you know, there's going to be different sounds coming down that line, I'm probably going to at least at first throw a pretty, pretty hot compressor on there that's going to yeah. catch any crazy blasting motif patch or whatever it is it, if it's a motif I, i'm definitely putting it you know high ratio <laughs> i think the, right. the, the compressor on the keys works both ways right because it's either going to be like too hot or too quiet oh it de- so yeah, right yeah, if you're hitting sure. with the compressor you're taming those highs bringing up the lows a little bit like, keyboard player you know, hate you until you take it I, off i'm gonna hate me yeah. i'm gonna hate me too though because like i don't like the sound of a compressor absolutely slamming no uh, you know a channel Totally. But the thing is, it's the only thing that makes it possible for us to be able to hear the quiet stuff and the loud stuff yeah. without killing people, right? Yeah. So I do exactly what you just described on tons of channels, not just like just keys. I call them safety compressors. If it's a band I don't know and I'm not sure what's coming down the line, I might have, a, and of course this is in digital world because I can put compressors everywhere. I might have compressors. I'll put on a bunch of channels, even guitar lines, and they'll be sitting with the threshold just above what's already coming down at where I'm like, this sounds good. Uh I just put them in all sorts of places, and the idea being that if a guitar player hits a pedal and all of a sudden he thinks it's solo mode, she thinks it's solo mode, and the guitar goes up 10 dB, that's obviously a problem for the mix. You know, So Mm -hmm. I will, with an artist I don't know well, put a bunch of compressors sitting just outside of the threshold of where they're currently playing or currently, you know, levels are coming in just in case someone does something crazy. And, you know, this isn't about masking or making space, but it is preventing stuff from getting so out of control that it just starts hiding everything else. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I find myself doing that on digital desks all the time too. Just like... I guess where it gets dangerous, though, is that if you actually start pulling down that threshold so it's actually compressing everything, mm-hmm. or you just start leaving it there once you, like, actually get deeper into, you know, working with an artist, that kind of becomes a problem. Because that's not really the best way to do it. It's more just a safety way to do it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, the best way would be to listen to every sound that's going to come out of, you know, that that instrument, uh, you know, prior to the show and analyze and, you know, carefully. And but, work know, with them on patches. Right. But you don't have uh, that luxury all the time. Uh, it's it's funny we're talking about this because uh, it's actually a ma- like a kind of a major point of contention with with Mac tours and stuff, particularly on this the the Roland Juno we have. We, we, we yeah. carry a Juno 60 mm. and ones in the to make it matters to exacerbate it even more the ones we've uh, toured on in the past have not been in the best shape and maybe have um, right so a lot of those um 
uh, a lot of those oscillators and stuff like that are not necessarily consistent. But um, but that thing, I mean, and and Mac is very big on his his keyboard patches. He he spends a lot of time crafting very really great sounding stuff. To be honest, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know that that Juno is like very dynamic and it its level is all over the place and. Uh, you know, uh, an engineer would, you know, any engineer would be like, you know, p- throw a comp on it. But but because of how, like, simple some of those waveforms are and because of how signy they sound... The, the compressors sec- can do crazy it, stuff it just, with them. You know, it just really sucks the life out of it. Um, yeah. And they fucking hate it. And it's like, it's you know, it's a, it's a really funny uh, argument to hear him. Luckily, uh, the monitor guy gets most of the heat now because in the monitors, it's almost it's almost like more of a big deal because like yeah the the, the volume he's throwing, just, it at, he's throwing into floor monitors too or, uh, or did or you know yeah yeah he's yeah. compressing them in the monitors because like the volume will jump so high on stage sometimes that like that that, that if he doesn't compress it they're looking at him going like what the fuck what the yeah. fuck's wrong with you like you know it's like dude it's your it's your patch you know but it's like you just fucking you just switched, <laughs> you did it yeah yeah but either way like like you know the sound of the super compressed Juno is like is like not good. You know it's not yeah. it's not what it's meant to be. So, um, so you got to chase it. You know. You know. You know. Random tip and trick. Uh, I had an artist that did something really really similar, where it was tough for me is that in a song they might change the patch three times. Yeah. Right. So it's not even like I can just make a snapshot that sorted it out. Yeah. Um, and also sometimes they would use different patches. It wouldn't always be the exact same three patches in that song. Right. And maybe they were just feeling something different. And that that's totally fine and acceptable. But it was the, the same issue you're talking about, where the patches were all over the place, level-wise. So one day, um, after soundcheck, while they weren't there, um, we set the keyboard to send out MIDI program changes for every single patch change. And then I had a tech on stage, and he'd play it. And I set my console so that I had, like, sub-snapshots for every single keyboard patch. Whoa. And it would only affect that one channel, and I think I set it to affect the dynamics and the EQ on that one channel. So if he went to patch 101, a dynamic and EQ setting for patch 101 would happen on my desk immediately. Crazy. And if he went to 102, a change would happen. It was absolute mayhem to get it set up, because we went from MIDI, converted MIDI to Ethernet, ran Ethernet to front of house, converted back from Ethernet back to MIDI, and then into the (laughs) desk, and then I had to build all these patches... But, I mean, it, it probably took, I don't know, a solid six hours to, like, get it all kind of dialed in. Uh-huh. But that was six hours spread out across, like, you know, weeks or whatever. Yeah. And what I was doing was he'd hit a patch, and I'd make a tweak, and I'd just hit store, store. Right. And, like, during a show. And then mm. he'd hit a different patch that I didn't have saved, and I'd hit store, store. So I didn't even know evolving. which patches they were. I just I just made patches for every single thing that could possibly come in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I made snapshots for everything that could possibly come in, and I just kept storing over them. And then I could look at them and see which ones actually had shit in them, and then I just deleted all the rest. And I was like, cool, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. That's, that's, a, that's a sick move. But yeah, it, it, super geeky, and you need a team that's like totally on board with doing crazy things in order to spend the time and effort to do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be your musician. If your musician doesn't know, that's totally fine. Uh, I don't think. I think our musician eventually knew, um, but I think it was like a solid like week and a half or so before you know he even said something. He's like, "Oh, how come you're using the MIDI out?" Or you know, like, yeah, just a question like that came up, and I was well. like, "Oh, I've got you know." I've got it tracking all your patch changes. And he's like, oh, that's really cool. Didn't I don't think he even really fully knew what that meant. Yeah. But it worked really well. So tip and trick that has really nothing to do with making space for channels. But uh, there it is. Bang. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I could do that for the Juno. But uh, yeah, I think the MIDI out is limited. <laughs> I think the MIDI out on it can still do program changes, though. Does it have MIDI out? I don't know. Whatever. Whatever One, it may one be. of them this doesn't have Juno podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually the Juno podcast episode. (laughs) Compress the Juno. Um, So let's get back to the topic at hand, and let's get deep into EQ specifically. Are we still talking about making space? Yeah, I think so. I think we are still talking about making space, because I think that's probably the harder thing than getting balance. Yeah. You're going to be tempted in the live sound world to go hard on EQ, and um, a lot of times, by all means, go hard. But um, just keep in mind that 
keep in mind your balance. You know, it, 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 they both play off each other. Keep in mind that your balance is going to change whatever you're doing, and you know, the the perception of how you EQ that guitar is going to change in the context of everything. You know, totally. You know, um, I guess a good point you make there, right? Is is an EQ change that you make on a channel is you know, a change in, in level of a certain frequency range. Right. Right. And now the relationship between channel one and channel two might sound good. Mm-hmm. But then when you take channel two and turn it up three dB, that change in level of that frequency range may no longer be that relevant because there's a whole offset in level mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point. So at the end of the day, all you're trying to do is get things to work with each other as best I can. It's not that they're ever going to be perfect. Right. And right. Let's say you've got a guitar and a keyboard. I, I keep going back to these two, again, that are kind of sitting on top of each other, right? I might say, you know what? I want the top end from the keyboard because it sounds cleaner, and I want kind of the mid-range and bottom end from the guitar because they, you know, that's just how I've decided I want it to be. You know, So I might take the keyboard and take the top end, trim it up a tiny bit, and I might take roughly that same competing range in the guitar and I might trim it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I say a little bit, I mean, I don't know, 2 dB, maybe 3 dB. That might not feel like it makes much of a change when they're at the same level. And then when I push the keyboard up or guitar down, they still sit right on top of each other again because Mm -hmm. we haven't made a serious change. The other option is to take the keyboard top end, boost it up like 9, 10 dB, <laughs> take the guitar top end, take it down 9, 10 dB. It's going to be really obvious that you've done that, and it'll work. It really will work. But then if there's ever a moment where you're like, I now want to hear the guitar and hear the guitar well, when you push the guitar up, the guitar is going to sound dull. It's not going yeah. to Once the keys, feel normal. The second the keys drop out, yeah, all of a sudden the guitar is going to sound dull and muddy. You're going to be like, what? Like, why? Ex- exactly. So it's like this balance of making an instrument work with other stuff versus having an instrument sound normal on its own. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's like the tough decision part because you might find that it's the same frequency range that you're going to be messing with to do that. But if you want it to sound good together, you might do extreme EQ. But then when you want to have like a solo from one of those instruments or hear one of them on its own, the extreme EQ makes it sound crap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm probably one of those people who puts that burden on himself and is, and then is like, you know, okay, fine, I'm going to chase this EQ around the entire show, you know? <laughs> and that's, right. you know, that's just the, like, inherent guilt of being the sound guy, just being like, you know, if anything sounds not 100% perfect, like, it's my fault, you know? That's not yeah. the case. And don't, and try not to take that perspective, but I think we all kind of, you know, at least a little bit, if you're the guy in the seat, you know, you you want it to be, you want it to be perfect, you know? Um, of course, yeah. So, I mean, it's know. it's almost like it's it's your name on that piece of art. You've signed the corner there, you know? Yeah. So when someone when someone looks at it, they're not going to go, you know, I, I blame the color palette that you were given. Right. <laughs> they go, I blame <laughs> no. you, you know? Yeah, like, why does it sound so weird? It's like, well, you should well, hear what it fucking sounds like before me, motherfucker. <laughs> I, I, I will admit, man, there was one, one gig I did that was a really tough gig. It's actually, I think, the only gig I've ever quit. Um... It was a really tough gig, and uh, I was at front of house one time, and this guy standing, this is some outdoor festival, this guy standing next to front of house goes, uh, turn the vocal up. And I just handed him the headphones with the vocal soloed. Mm-hmm. And you should see the face he made. Uh, and then he handed the headphones back to me. That was it. And he, he didn't ask for anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was that bad, it was, huh? It can was we get tough, a name? We, we can't get a name. No, right no, no. I, you, okay, I can't give you a name. Right. But yeah. I can tell you that there was, I don't know, somewhere between 6 to 10 dB more crowd in that vocal than there was vocal. Oh. It was really, really rough. Uh, I was an artist tough. who wasn't used to performing on stage, let alone giant stages at festivals and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was rough. And, and obviously that artist has gotten better and they've kind of got it sorted out. But this was really early on in the career. So it was... It was hard, but mm-hmm. that was a moment where I was like, there's, there's nothing I can do and yeah. there's nothing I can say to make this okay to somebody else. Yeah. But here, take a listen and you can figure it out. <laughs> right. Right. That's a, it's a bummer. And, and, you know, in this, in, in this career path, you will experience things like that where, you know, spe- especially starting out cause you're doing these mm-hmm. like local bands, you know, in, in wherever, and maybe they're not, maybe they, maybe that's their first show, you know, and it yeah. might be bad and it's going to be harder you do you're yeah. going to be trying and trying and trying and trying to make it 
to try and get that space. And sometimes it just That's, doesn't nope, doesn't yeah. work out. Yeah. And then sometimes you, know, you pull up the faders and you're like, I don't need to do anything. This is yeah. great. Yeah. You, you know, totally along those lines, and I guess this is the next thing I was going to ask anyways, but when you guys hear a show, let's remove you from the mixing seat for a moment. When you guys hear a show... What do you hear as the difference, especially from the context of this, making space for channels, between like an amateur mix and a super pro mix? Um, it's It comes down to a feeling kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it comes down to um, if like if how a song progresses in the dynamic and throughout the dynamics of a song, you're compelled the way you know maybe you were meant to you know mm. that that's the goal with a record is to is to create energy delivering emotion exactly mm-hmm. you know creating energy yeah. and 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 building and and releasing and all that stuff and um if that can come through in a live performance you know that's that's pretty amazing when you think about it you mm-hmm. know um th- that it's a feeling that's my short answer yeah. i have to say I, I do need to be able to understand the vocals well, like yeah. that's uh, yeah. I don't know, which is kind of funny because I find myself listening to music in headphones or like just randomly throughout the day. And I'll be like, I've listened to this song a million times, but I've never like thought no about what, what the saying. vocals are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't really care. It just, it does make, give me that feeling. Right. But when I go to the show and I can't like pick it's, and it's hard, it's harder for me to pick out and yeah. like feel into it unless the vocals are coming through. You're you're distracted by trying to like decipher what you know what they're saying or yeah yeah you know it's funny I'm I'm dead in the middle between your two answers right mm. because I want to feel it and because I I view mixing and 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 all that as emotional delivery I want to deliver yeah. emotion to someone I want them to feel something when they're there watching this right but then there's the other aspect they're watching this. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to hear everything I can see. Mm-hmm. True. So true. If, if I can see a singer singing and I can't hear it clearly, I have a huge problem. If I mm-hmm. see a keyboard player, you know, bouncing up and down on the keys and I'm like, I, I don't hear that. I have a problem. Um, so I think that actually is literally just merging your two answers. I think, Brendan, yeah. the reason why you want to hear that singer is because you're watching it and yeah. you're seeing it happen and you're going, I, I can't tell what he's doing while I'm seeing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh it's yeah it's like a brain disconnect, you know. It's uh it was like the uh, the weekend thing on the Super Bowl the other day. <laughs> oh, I didn't actually see it. Was it good? No, no, uh, there was no vocal in the, in the mix at all. <laughs> there was no vocal. No, literally like, none. No, like massive fuck up. I'm sorry. I don't mean. I hope I'm not calling anyone out. I'm sure there's a perfectly valid explanation for it, but there was there were some technical problems for sure. It's all. Look, I'm sure. I'm, I'm I'm sure whoever that is that did it has already heard what you I just know. said. I know. I'm so sorry. From a hundred different people. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> hopefully, they're, hopefully they're not listening. Hopefully, the guy who's mixing the Super Bowl is not listening to the, be, you know, beginners. That being said, if you've mixed audio at the Super Bowl and you want to come do an interview on the podcast, please, we please would love come. to hear. I'm that so interested. True. True. If you want to talk but about also, what went wrong, let's you know. But also, you know, there is the understanding that it could have had nothing to do with the mixer. It could have. Yeah. For all we know, the vocal never made it to the desk. For There's all we know, he wasn't really seeing. Well, yeah, there's that too. Usually, uh, typically at the Super Bowl, the whole backing band is on track and then the vocal is actually live. Right. Typically. Um, what, wasn't there a whole thing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers where they were like, just they, making fun they of the said that thing? They, they said that they have to be live and everyone said no. So Flea like, didn't ever plug his bass in. Yeah, I remember so that was, there was so photos obvious. of that. Yeah. 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 You know, th- that happens though. Uh, you know, Muse, there's a lot of television shows, right, that, you, that you'll go on with an artist. And uh, as a TV show, they say, well, we only actually have three inputs. We can't actually do this. Right. Mm-hmm. So they on purpose will just say, well, you have to play to track or you can play to track and have live vocal or something like that. But basically, they're not actually outfitted to be able to take a 60 input gig. Mm-hmm. So Muse went and did, I think it was an Italian TV show, and they all just swapped instruments. So the singer was playing drums, the uh, bass player was singing, the drummer was playing bass. And it was like this epic drum fill that was like a point of the song. And while it happens, Matt just sticks his arms straight in the air and just yells. So the, the drum fill is happening while his hands are just straight up and he's like yelling. And then he just keeps playing. It's yeah. hilarious yeah. to watch. Apparently the TV show got super mad about it. Yeah, if but, you watch uh, any of those like old Top of the Pops from the UK, yeah, the classic one is Morrissey with... Uh, with the Smiths, they they, mm-hmm. they, were, they were like, you have to play the tracks. And he's like, okay, well, then my microphone's going to be a bou- bouquet of flowers. 
and he's it's just awesome. like swinging around singing Sick. into it yeah damn i gotta but, watch that that sounds pretty cool actually it's, it's, it's a good one so i find that there are a lot of brain tricks you can play on somebody right um think about a room full of people let's say you're in a room and there's 50 people in that room and they're all talking at the same time you can't really hear what anyone's saying it's just kind of noise right mm -hmm. but then if you notice that your friend brendan is right there in the room you haven't changed anything else, but you've noticed that Brendan's right there. Friend. Suddenly, you can hear what Brendan is saying. Friend? <laughs> yeah, friend? I have a question mark? <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, the, the, the point is, your brain has now focused on, that's Brendan. Yeah. I know what Brendan's voice sounds like, and you can hear him, even though yep. nothing else has changed. Mm -hmm. Right? If I see Joe in the room... Not friend. Notice I didn't say friend. Yeah. <laughs> then, my brain can then go, I know what Joe's voice sounds like. I can hear what Joe is saying. Yeah. And the rest of it is just din. It's background. I am annoyed. Yeah. He's annoyed. He's always annoyed when you're no, no. that many well, people. No, I mean, I mean you're he's, annoyed he's by hearing my, my voice. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but anyways, that concept, the concept that our brains can pick things out if we're familiar with them, mm -hmm. translates really well to mixing. Yeah. So if you've got something very dense there's a keyboard happening two guitars happening bass uh drums backing vocals and a lead vocal that's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. but you can find moments wherein you can bump one of them a lot right so for example the keyboard maybe right on the downbeat of this section you just want to make that little key lick really loud you just bump it up a bunch so everyone hears that keyboard and then when you tuck it back Everyone's brain is familiar with what that keyboard sounds like. They are more able to pick it out out of a dense mix. Yeah, you got a missile lock on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can do that with all the instruments inside of that dense section mm -hmm. by just picking little bits of time where each of them get hear, heard really clearly and then tucking them back. At that point, your brain is kind of more capable of picking out each individual element. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it totally works. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, yeah, making sure kind of you know, just retouching over that, just making sure that in parts where you really need to hear that instrument, you know, if there's like, if there's a very distinct keyboard line or a guitar noodle or something like that, it's like very much the meat of the melody, you know, um, and it's only in certain parts or whatever, like, yeah, like, like boost it up there for a minute. And, and then, and then, you know, the guitar could be like buried for the rest of the song, but because yeah. they heard the guitar in the moment where it was important, it's like, yeah, the guitar was great. Like, you know, exactly muddy as shit the whole rest of the show. But like, I heard it that one part, like it was sounded thing, great, thing fantastic. Is, they won't even they won't even notice it's muddy as shit the rest it's, of the that, show. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, like you know, like talk about this from the cons the context of someone that loves a band or loves an artist or loves music. Every time we listen to a record, there are always these like little kind of uh, sparkles, if you will, thrown in. Like this mm -hmm. chime that happens one time after the first chorus. That's the stuff that people really love this stuff also tend to hook on to. Mm -hmm. If you can make sure that those get heard, then the experience as a whole is great. And exactly as you said, if you hear that one lick from the guitar that you've always been waiting for, That's it's almost okay that you bury yeah. the guitar for three quarters of the rest of the mix. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, but... Even in the context of all that, you know, back to if you see it, you, you need to be able to hear it. You still do need to be able to hear some, you know, all, all the instruments that are obviously visible all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a bunch of playback happening as well, and you've got a bunch of things happening, you might have keyboards on playback happening with keyboards live. In the context of that, I typically pick one of them and I go, you're the one that gets to be real. And the other one, you're tucked in, right? Mm -hmm. In an ideal scenario... I, you know, I'd sit sit down with the musical director or sit down with the players and go, which parts are on track, which parts are played live. Let's make sure they're never the same, you know. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't always happen. In, in an ideal world, I'd get the actual keyboard player to play all that stuff and just remove it from the tracks. But you know, there's a lot of contexts like uh, House of Worship where there might be a stuff on uh, a bunch of stuff on track, but there might be three different keyboard players that play on different days depending on the day of the week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can't necessarily orchestrate it as cleanly. So in those scenarios, you're going to have both. So when you have both, what do you guys do? Like you said, pick one, you know? Yeah, and it kind of boils down to whichever one you feel works better. Whichever yeah, one you, you, or whichever one the song relies on more, which is usually the one they're playing, the, the keyboardist is playing, usually. Or whichever one sounds better. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a keyboardist that's not so great, I might lean more heavily on track. If you've got a keyboardist who's absolutely smashing it and totally in the groove, yeah, absolutely lean on that. Depends you know? on the band, too. I mean, like, if it's if it's like a soul band, but they also have tracks or something like that, you're probably going to lean on the player because the players are usually more important in that kind of music. Totally. But if it's like a pop group and the keyboard player has like four keyboards or whatever and he's just do, or he or she is like doing a bunch of stuff, no one's going to know. Right. Because they're not playing like lead lines and stuff like that. You know, um, I, I feel like this is a thing we can go on forever. So, you know, before we end up closing up, I got to tell you a story about exactly that. Let's hear it. So I was on a gig where um, the keyboard player had to leave the tour in the middle of the tour. Right. Mm. Um, and we obviously had to figure out something where we, we replace this fella like ASAP because we had a show, I think. I think we had a day off and then another show. So we had one day to get this sorted. So obvious safety solution was let's go back to our old shows, take all the recorded virtual sound checks I have and get those track, well, live keyboards that we recorded, mm -hmm. uh, put them in the playback rig so that we can play them back if somehow we can't get a keyboard player, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. This is a little complicated because there's a bunch of stuff that happens where it's like, uh, there's no click track or anything like that, and it's just keys happening. So it it was complicated, obviously, to be able to build a show on playback around a live show. So anyways, what we ended up doing was we, we, we built all this, put it all into the playback rig, send it out two more outputs, and I would then take two inputs at front of house and at monitors of quote-unquote keyboards, mm -hmm. right? So I still had all those regular inputs just because I was expecting a keys player to come in at some point and we were going to, you know, have them be playing live again. Mm -hmm. um, as it turns out, it, it didn't happen. And we ended up getting someone who just came in and mimed for the last, like, I don't know, three weeks or something. It was too hard to teach someone a two and a half hour set in a few days and get them to come in and actually play well. So mm -hmm. we had someone come in and mime, right? Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. Everyone in the house is hearing the recorded stuff from the previous player. Everyone is seeing this keyboard player mime, mm -hmm. right? But as far as they're... And there's even a keys solo in the show. Shit. And as far as everyone's concerned, they're like, oh, man, the keys sound great. I can totally hear this guy. Now, where it gets real funny is that the following year, we got a new band and got a new keys player. And he went online and found videos of a show to learn the keys parts. Oh, shit. One of those shows. He, yeah, it was one of those shows. And it was like, I don't know, some big festival. So there's a bunch of like cameras that like get right up on his oh, hands no. and you can see what he's playing, right? Now, mind you, the guy who mimed was like totally on. The timing was like spot on. So it looked like he was playing well if you didn't know keys. Mm -hmm. Now we've got this keyboard player trying to watch this video of this dude hitting random notes in time and trying to learn how to play the songs based like, on that. Like, I don't get it, man. It's just it's I, it just doesn't I just he, he's doesn't like, line he, up. He must have like that some transpose settings. <laughs> yeah. On, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I ended up talking to him when we did the first rehearsals and he's like, "I don't understand how he hit these. Were you doing something? Like was he doing something? Did he have settings?" And Is I was the whole like, "Holding pitch shift." Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, just don't watch those. And he's like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's what we're gonna do with you if uh, you can't figure this out, bud. So get crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, it was just it was just a funny, funny, funny scenario of like a keys player doing something on stage that an audience could see, but they had no idea they weren't hearing him. And I guess that's why I kind of dropped this in because like when it comes to keys, for the most part, you could probably get away with you know writing heavy on playback. Yeah, because people usually can't see their hands. When it comes to things like guitars, mm -hmm. people can see the hands yeah. a lot. A little more see, it's a lot harder to mm -hmm. fake that with playback, you know? Drums, it's really hard to get into faking that with yeah. playback, you know? You can see the hands moving on, you know? You can so. hear the stuff coming off stage, you know? Yeah. Totally. I mean, if there's an amp or whatever, yeah. Yeah, totally. But, you know, anyways, uh, yeah, back to that. You know, the whole masking of playback versus live. Um, pick one. Pick, pick one, one, lean heavily on it. Mm -hmm. If you need both there... As far as I'm concerned, I'm totally happy to do heavy EQ on playback. Totally yeah. happy to do really heavy yeah. EQ on playback. Because there's never going to be a moment where there's playback like solo and it actually matters that much. Unless it's like an intro or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, I feel like we went on long about this and we probably had way too many tangents. And I don't know if we really got to the core of how to make space for channels. I, I how do you guys we, feel? I don't 
don't know. I mean, it's I, it's so subjective, you know. You kind of have to talk about it in these like indirect yeah. terms, you know. Brendan, anything you want to drop in? Um, I think just like what we were talking about at the top, like choosing the order that you listen to things in, and not like getting so set in like bringing things up one at a time and like narrowly focusing. I feel like a wider focus, getting a better perspective, is like the key to figuring out how to make space yeah anyways uh we're going to continue this conversation i guess uh, as we jump into mixing workflows part two yep well thanks for listening uh catch you next week maybe whenever it is we decide to post the next episode and brendan what are all our links we have a website uh livesoundbootcamp.com and you can actually email us at, and our email address is feedback at livesoundbootcamp.com so if you have any questions comments you want to be on the show if you're uh if you've engineered audio at the super bowl hit us up <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> uh and uh, we also have a facebook group so you can go on there and talk to other people who are into the show and we check in every once in a while and post comments and stuff like that but uh, oh up. yeah and go subscribe on all the podcast apps and leave us a review hit us cool. up if it's good yeah don't leave us a review if it's bad but then again, if you made it one hour into this episode, you must think it's like not that shit. Five stars. You're a glutton for punishment. Yeah, the fascination of like watching the, the, the train crash is Thanks again to our sponsor, Rational Acoustics. Visit www.rationalacoustics.com for information on sales, training, and all things system measurement.